Amazon splits, Under Armour gets the boot, and we go inside an ETF. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Jason Moser. Happy Amazon split day. <laughs> I was wondering, man. I felt like I went back to like my original cost basis, and I thought, wait a minute, what? But uh, no, yeah, it's uh, you know one of one of a few splits coming up, right? I think we've got Alphabet coming up soon as well. We do, and yeah. let's let's stick with this. Uh, for those who missed it, Amazon uh, today is the day uh, before the market open. Amazon shares split twenty for one. So for every one share shareholders own, they now have twenty at one twentieth the previous price. Which of course uh, led to some uh, some some funny postings on social media of of you know the the stock chart uh, down ninety five percent that sort of thing. Um, but I want to get to the, what's happening with the S and P five hundred because there's some rebalancing going on. We'll get to that in a second. But in terms of the stock splits, this is something that comes up now and again. Um, and we always say the same thing, which is like, hey, the pizza's the same size whether you cut it into four slices or in eight slices. And that's true. And I'm not going to say it's not true. But what I will say is that th- this seems like one of those situations where more than one thing can be true at the same time. Because, yes, the size of the pizza hasn't changed. And yet, Human nature says there are plenty of people out there who have no interest in buying shares of a stock that is four digits. They are much more comfortable. They are much more likely to consider owning shares of Amazon at one twentieth its previous price, even though the market cap is the same and the business is the same. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're. Talking about all this pizza, and I mean, I had pizza for dinner last night, and the crazy. And now I'm ready for for more pizza. To your point there, I, I I agree. Yeah, it's it's something we say often. It's it's the same size pizza, right? It's the same fundamental business. Um, it's just sliced into more pieces, and that's ultimately what we got here with Amazon. And and I mean that is true, right? I mean, at the end of the day, as an Amazon shareholder, I I don't really. Care about the stock split, right? I've got 20 shares as opposed to one, but it ultimately results in the same economic value. Now, with that said, I did a little digging, and there there is some interesting research out there. I tweeted this out earlier, and and it does. The Bank of America research does have some 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 facts to kind of back this up that share splits do have an impact, right? They are ultimately a good thing. They can be a positive catalyst. Now, now it is it is I I will say it is a near-term catalyst, right? I don't know that it's something that you really would apply to 5 or 10 years. I think then you kind of get into the question of that the business is kind of doing its thing. But it is interesting data nonetheless. It says that companies have outperformed the S&P 500 by 16.3% after split announcements. Now, this data goes back to 1980. And they talk about these these companies splitting their shares, and it looks at uh, windows from three months after, six months after, and twelve months after. And if you look at three months after, uh, the S and P returned two point one percent versus the stock split seven point eight percent. Go to six months, and those numbers become four point four percent and thirteen point nine percent. And if you look a year out, these companies that split their shares 
outperformed the S&P rather significantly, 25.4% to 9.1%. So, Again, I mean, it, it, 12 months is that is that much in the context of a business that you want to hang on to indefinitely? No, I mean, I've owned shares of Amazon for uh, better than a decade, but the fact remains that it does have an impact, and gains are gains. And so, anytime, anytime you can get a little bit of a head start there, I mean, am, am I going to turn down? That delta? Am I going to turn down? Uh, you know that little that little extra return? No, I'm not. Uh, and, it, and it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, you you mentioned it earlier. I mean, it is it is a much bigger hurdle to clear convincing someone that three thousand dollars for a share isn't expensive, even though relatively speaking, it may not be very expensive. Uh, whereas one hundred and twenty five dollars per share. Uh, is is far far less expensive. I mean, the optics are there, and I think that just really goes to show that it becomes a little bit easier for more people to buy that share at one hundred twenty-five dollars versus you know three thousand dollars. Even in the day of of, uh, of fractional share purchasing, I think a lot of people, myself included, we kind of like to buy whole shares when we can. Um, but nevertheless, it's very interesting data. I think it's it's something to keep in mind there as we uh, discuss this this stock split uh, phenomenon. And Andy Jassy, the CEO, had talked previously about a big catalyst for this move for Amazon is their employee base, which has grown dramatically over the past two years, and their ability to reward uh, staff members who are. Um, you know, making under let's just call it fifty thousand dollars a year, and being able to reward them with a few shares, as opposed to if someone's you know making thirty thousand dollars a year, one share of stock is a you know is a ten percent bonus. So, um, it, hopefully, this will have a positive impact on retention and hiring at Amazon. You mentioned Alphabet. I mean, that's coming July fifteenth. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to surprise me if we see a similar move, and we're seeing a little bit of it today. Um, but to your point, this is you know, we we always have our long-term hats on at the Motley Fool. But you know, if, if you want to take a short-term hat, you know, for any <laughs> for the for the one or two day traders out there listening, it's like, well, congratulations. This this seems like a nice opportunity if you're like, I'm going to buy shares of Alphabet today, and then I'm just going to ride out the bump that's probably coming in mid-July and then sell. Sure, I'll take that short-term capital gains tax, but damn it, I'm going to make my nine percent. Well, Chris, no one ever went broke making a small profit. I have heard that before. In terms of the S&P 500, um, one of the headlines I saw this morning is that Under Armour is is being kicked out of the S&P 500. And as a longtime shareholder, I was surprised to learn that it was still in the S&P 500. <laughs> um, but this is this is the the calendar based rebalancing that goes on. Uh, Keurig Dr Pepper is being added um, along with a couple other companies. Vici Properties being one of them. In in the same way that I sort of frame the question of do stock splits matter, when you look at the S and P five hundred, the Nasdaq, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, when you look at a company being added or subtracted, do you look at that as something that is material? Does that matter to you? Personally, it does not for me. I mean, I don't buy um, or sell a stock based on the index. Uh, in which it resides. Uh, now, with that said, it, it's not to say that this is something that just doesn't matter at all. Though, though it does seem like it is dwindling in importance. Now, we talk about this, and, and it's known as the index effect. 
Um, and there's a patent. There's a paper written recently, uh, fairly recently, by S and P Global, which talks about this index effect, and it talks about how it used to be more important than it is today. And and they they it, it's it's an interesting paper. It's probably a little dry for a lot of people, but I mean, there's a lot of data that supports this. But ultimately, it documents that over the past three decades, that stocks added to a popular index tended to outperform the index between the announcement date and the effective date. And then this was typically followed by a small post-effective date correction. Now, this, this kind of plays into that same thing we were talking about with stock splits, right? This is, this is more short-term in nature. Uh, but, but what we have seen over the last 25 years, according to this paper, is ultimately this index effect is is declining, right? It's waning, and and it ultimately they attribute this to the structural changes that have been taking place in the financial industry and capital markets. There's the rise in EFTs, uh, markets becoming more efficient, more liquid, uh, passive inv investive uh, investing is evolving, and e index rebalancing uh, that plays into that. So it's something that used to matter a little bit more. There were some short-term impacts. Uh, that came from this years ago, but it does look like that that index effect is waning, uh, just due to the evolution of markets themselves. But again, I go back to, I mean, I, I don't I don't buy or sell stocks based on on the index. I think that's something to keep in mind. I mean, it is something that uh, is is always happening. And in in when when stocks are when companies are are pulled out of an index like the S and P five hundred, for example, I mean that requires in in you know ETFs and other funds that mimic uh, those benchmarks to basically rebalance as well. So there will be buying and selling in accordance with rebalancing. You have to ask yourself the question of why is a company being removed from a given index? I mean, I think you could you could make the argument that Under Armour is being removed from from the S and P uh, because it's not worthy, right? It's been having uh, significant trouble. And and it's not to say that they can't turn this ship around, uh, but they've got plenty of work to do. And and so you see this happen uh, more often than we probably talk about it on these shows. Uh, but it was interesting to dig into that index effect and learn the history of it. Uh, earlier, when you were speaking, um, I think you misspoke. You said um, EFTs when you meant ETFs, um, and I just didn't want anyone to think that you had created a new um, version of non fungible tokens. <laughs> called EFTs to go with NFTs. Thank you. Um, uh, last thing before we move on, we'll, we'll, we'll actually talk more about ETFs later in the show. Um, uh, last thing before we move on, it is about the underlying business. I mean, you and I have been talking about things that are short term in nature, um, but it, it absolutely, the, the long term rewards come from long term great businesses. And if belonging to the S and P 500 had a long term material positive effect on a company, uh, Under Armour would be doing better. I would, I would just <laughs> yeah. say that you'd like to believe you'd like. To you'd li I would like to believe that. Um, let's get to some uh, comments from Howard Schultz. This was in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. Um, Schultz basically giving an update on his time at the company since he has returned as interim CEO. And the headline coming out of that conversation is Schultz saying, "We're going to be hiring from outside the company," yeah. which. Was something that I had assumed. I know there were people out there that, when Schultz returned, they thought, "Oh, of course, Schultz returned. He's staying for the long term." Schultz pretty clearly saying, "No, I'm just here to oversee a smooth transition. We have some good candidates. He didn't name any of them, which is smart. But 
as a shareholder of the company, I, I view all of that as a positive, both that Schultz is committed to overseeing the transition, that he sees the need for someone outside the company for a fresh set of eyes, because the company that he built around the concept of the third place, you've got your work, you've got your home, and you've, we want to be your third place, he realizes, no, that's not going to work, and we need fresh eyes on this. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm a shareholder myself, and I was I was refreshed to hear his conviction here. I mean, I I, I expected it, frankly. I mean, I don't think he wants this job anymore. Um, I think he feels respected and valued in that they are looking to him to help solve this problem. Um, but but to your point, yeah, this this is a much different company. I mean. It, it's hard to imagine that you think, well, Starbucks is a coffee company, and I mean, yeah, at its core, this is true. Um, but but it's very interesting to note. I mean, this is a company that now makes more of its money selling cold beverages on the go than hot beverages, where people want to go sit down and have a conversation, right? And so that third place is even evolving. I mean, you you hear them talking about um, building this this digital third place even now. They they you hear talk of the metaverse and Starbucks Starbucks earning earnings calls, which uh, I mean, I'm not sure. Exactly where to take that, Chris. I like my coffee in real life. Um, but I, you know, listen, I mean, the metaverse is it's real and it's happening. And, and I, I think that companies looking to to establish a presence in that space makes a lot of sense. And, and Starbucks looks like it's going to be doing that. But but he said it right. I mean, for the future of the company, we need a domain of experience and expertise in a number of disciplines that we don't have now. And, and this is just a company that is it's it's a different company today than it was 20 years ago. And and we know that the world is is headed in a different direction as technology continues to to sort of evolve and, and change the way we do things. And so, um, to me, going outside looking for an external hire, looking for external talent, makes a lot of sense. I think it, it's not an automatic, but I think it can work out very well. I mean, you look at how Chipotle benefited from bringing in uh, Brian Nickel, right? It's not to say. That that's easily replicated. It's not to say they can just go out and find their own nickel, right? But it does show you the potential impact it could have if they make a wise hire, and and I believe that they are taking this very seriously. And 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 I one of the reasons why I think that is, I mean, if you look at what's been going on over just the past several weeks that that Mr. Schultz has been back there, I mean, he's he's letting talent go. He's asking talent that has been there for a while to actually step down and and leave. And and that to me is a sign that he sort of sees the writing on the wall and realizes they need to refresh this entire leadership team uh, to build a Starbucks that's going to be able to take on the challenges of this new technologically driven uh, economy that we're really morphing into. Um, so yeah, I, I don't I don't know that it's a problem that's easily solved. I will be fascinated to see the short list of talent they're looking to bring in there. Um, but I tell you. I'm a big fan of Howard Schultz and what he's done with the business, and I'm a big fan of his judgment when it comes to finding um, the right leaders and putting them in the right places here for Starbucks. And, and so I think he's taking this very seriously, and, and, I, and I like the chances that he will um, help fill that role with someone who's worthy. Appreciate the time, Jason. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. 
Some speculative assets have been imploding, leaving some investors to wonder, what backs up my investments? Matt Frankel joins Jason Moser to discuss how you can find out what's inside an ETF, and they share some ideas for how to keep it simple. Wanted to talk with you a little bit today uh, in regard to something that I think um, has become a little bit more of a question here, or something, something at least to pay attention to for investors here over the past couple of years. Is we've seen new asset classes develop. Uh, yeah, asset classes. I mean, you think of things like like uh, cryptocurrencies, like like non fungible tokens, right? NFTs. We're seeing sort of this new. Wave of asset classes coming along, and with that new wave uh, comes comes new ways to invest in them, right? And and we look at the market in particular this year. I mean, it's had, it had a rough start to the year. The Nasdaq in full on bear territory. The, the S and P has recovered slightly recently, but it's still down around fourteen percent for the year. And and folks like us who enjoy picking stocks, and we're dealing with some volatility. And I'd imagine some folks out there are even dealing with some sleepless nights. Um, one way to avoid those sleepless nights, though, it's something we always recommend investors consider, particularly investors who are just getting started, and that's having exposure to funds, right? In funds, one of the things we like to, to, to tout about funds, their instant diversification, right? You're making one purchase, but really getting a lot of exposure in that one purchase. So we're thinking, you're talking about things like ETFs, exchange traded funds, things like index funds, and even mutual funds. So I think we'd probably argue that. Mutual funds are on their way out, um, but but let's go ahead. Let's let's start the conversation real quick here by just a, let's remind listeners exactly. Let's talk about ETFs first and foremost here. Talk about what ETFs are. How do ETFs differ from other funds like mutual funds or index funds? Yeah, no, I agree that the mutual fund is on its way out, and that's generally because of the rise of ETFs. So an ETF, exchange traded fund. It pools investors' money into a big pot with a common objective. Uh, generally, with ETFs, it's to track a certain stock index or bond index or certain commodity. It's not an active investment, meaning you don't have investment managers actively making decisions. If they're, if it's an S and P 500 ETF, for example, they're just buying the 500 stocks that are in that index. So the big difference between those and mutual funds, which have index funds as well is that ETFs trade on the stock market in individual shares. You can buy them any time you want That when the market's open, just as easily as you could buy, say, a share of Disney. Um, you type in your order, you click the Buy button, and you just bought a few shares of this fund. It makes it a lot easier than a mutual fund, which generally prices once a day. You have higher minimum investments. Most mutual funds are in the thousands for your initial investment. Um, I have some of my favorite mutual funds, but in general, they are less convenient than ETFs. Is the big, big difference is the ETFs are designed for today's retail investor. Now, when we talk about ETFs, two questions come to mind, and I think they one question sort of piggybacks on the other. So let's start with this first question here, because there are a lot of different ETFs. I mean, there are a lot of different ETFs, um, and they can focus on broad market strategies. They can focus on particular industries within uh, markets. But when we're looking at ETFs, how do we know 
what that ETF actually owns. And so, I mean, like an ETF that says it's it's going to mirror the broader S&P 500 index. Well, we have a general idea. I mean, they're saying that they own the the businesses in the in the S&P and there's a way to find that. Um, but for ETFs that focus on all sorts of different strategies, how do we actually get to understand? How do we how do we find what those ETFs actually own? Yeah, so there's an easy answer and a hard answer to that. So the easy answer is let's you mentioned the S&P 500 index fund. The obvious answer is that they own the 500 stocks that make up that index. Right. The, to find any ETF's top holdings, you could usually find them directly on the website. Um, for the, I, my one of my favorites is the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF. The ticker symbol is VOO. If you go to Vanguard's website and find their their S&P 500 index fund homepage, you could find a list of the biggest holdings. The S&P 500 is what's called a weighted index, meaning that bigger companies count more. So you're going to see the big companies make up the top few holdings, like Apple, Amazon. Uh, you know, the the big tech companies are the are the big ones in that. But if you want to kind of really dig in to how much stock these companies actually own, the best way to go is to find the fund's annual report, which is also available on their website. But it's a bigger document. Um, I'm looking at the one for the Vanguard's S&P 500 ETF, and it's a 40-page document. Wow! But hidden inside that document is a is what's called the Schedule of Investments, and that's where they report to the SEC and to investors every share of stock that the fund owns. And this is a you know I don't know the exact number, but about a hundred billion dollar ETF. Um, and I'm looking through the like for example, I, Walt Disney Company. They own a little over 38 million shares of the stock, worth about six billion dollars. Uh, Netflix, they own 9.25 million shares of Netflix. And I can go on and on. I'm not going to read all 500 on this show, obviously. <laughs> but the point is, you can see to the single share how much stock these ETFs own. And it's not just that they're telling you this, because I could write on a piece of paper that I own 9 million shares of Disney. It doesn't make it true. Right. This is what the SEC is is there for to regulate and, and make them report the actual numbers and you could be very, very confident that these are accurate numbers as of the the date listed on the, the annual report. Well, and that that really is that does lead me to my next question. Ultimately, is they say that this is what they own, but then how do you know that they actually really do own it? And and I guess part of the reason that question comes up is because it feels like we we're in this we're in this sort of transition. Transitionary period where where the market it, you know, we're seeing these new these new asset classes coming about and it it feels like regulators are still trying to ultimately figure out how to regulate things like crypto things like NFTs. Um, it, it, is it is it something just that simple, right? I mean, if we want to confirm, I mean, a fund actually owns this. I mean, is there a designation we should be looking for that fund, or is the fact that the fund trades on the open market that means, right? That explicitly tells us that this is a fund that is subject to regulations uh, by the SEC, and that and that regulatory environment is what we use to confirm that these funds actually do own those assets. Yeah, if the fund trades on the Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange, you can pretty much be sure that those have been the financials have been audited and confirmed. Um, that's a big contrast to things that trade on the over-the-counter market. I know there are some, for example, Bitcoin vehicles that trade on the over-the-counter market yeah. that you know have less verification markets. Not that any of them are lying. I'm not saying that, but it's right. just less verification markets. There are some ETFs that trade on the over-the-counter market. Um, that you know have fewer verification requirements, and it's just the way that that regulations are set up. But it's 
you you can pretty much take them if you see this in their annual report you could pretty much be sure that these numbers have been confirmed they actually own these shares of stocks and by the way with a company like vanguard this is another reason i love vanguard's funds you can look at the individual companies um filings their proxy filings for example and see that Vanguard owns, say, 10% of Alphabet stock because of these right. index funds. So you can kind of confirm it backwards and forwards because you know the companies have to confirm it with these big investors. That's a really good point that you make there. Sort of graduating up from the over-the-counter, those pink, those pink sheets, as, as we refer to it sometimes. I mean, that there there is a reason why you'd prefer to be on the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq um, as opposed to being something uh, over the counter. I mean, there is a credibility that comes along with that 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 certainly leads you to a little bit of a of a different investor base. So that's good to know. Real quickly before we take off, I know you referred to the Vanguard S and P index fund earlier, the VOO. You're a real estate guy, Matt. Uh, you uh, you certainly have to have uh, at least one real estate ETF, one real estate-related uh, ETF that uh, floats your boat, right? Yeah, and I, I got to go with Vanguard again. Um, the, Vanguard has some of the lowest-cost ETFs. You're going to pay less in investment fees than you would in most places, which is... Vanguard's not paying me to say all this. I no, really no, am no. a big fan of Vanguard <laughs> ETFs. There are other no great secret. brands. I like Schwab has excellent ETFs as well. Uh, but the Vanguard Real Estate ETF, ticker symbol VNQ, um, that's one that I like. It's a market cap weighted index, just like the um, S and P 500. What about folks out there looking to protect their wealth? Maybe looking for a little income stream. There, you got anything for us? Yeah, and I'm surprised it's going to be a Vanguard fund. Uh, the Vanguard High Yield uh, VYM is the ticker for that one. It is a collection of a few hundred stocks that pay above average dividends. So on the aggregate, it pays a lot more than say an S and P 500 index fund. A great choice for retirees and pre-retirees. Well, we will leave it there. Matt, thanks so much for making the time for us today. Of course, always good to be here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.